Okay, welcome to Free Association again. This is the second half of the Matthias Desmet interview on the uh, on the pandemic podcast from a couple of months ago. So there's about another 45 minutes to play. I'm just going to set this away. You know, it's very difficult to quantify, uh, you know, um, but, but nonetheless, it's an interesting So, I, I mean, what, what I'd like to progress to talking about now, you know, we, we will, you know, you talked about when people um, uh, come to wake up, uh, they want to tear down the totalitarian state that they're in when they come to their senses, take down the leaders. Um, but obviously, prior to, to achieving that point, it takes a certain percentage of people, and, you know, 30%, you said, uh, will feel a certain way. I think it's taken us a long time to get anywhere close to that from the beginning. Uh, perhaps some of them are more silent, um, uh, as I was actually for much of the time. I was constantly, constantly moaning about it to my wife, uh, but, but not, not publicly. <laughs> um, so, so is it, what, what can we get? What, what insights can we gather to, to actually wake, you know, to, to, in simplistic terms, wake people up? And, and, and as part of that answer, would you would you mind sharing? You know, is there any insights from your own journey? Because you said at the beginning you didn't, you did, you know, you were looking at the statistics, and even though rationally it didn't make sense, but it got to a point where you had a moment of realization. Is there something from your own experience that perhaps uh, is an indicator of what, what leads people to make these kind of distinctions? Yes, well, I, I, you know, in my opinion, really, the most important thing is to continue to speak out, just to say that you do not agree with the mainstream narrative. That's the most basic thing, because mass formation is a kind of hypnosis, mm. and as such, it is a phenomenon that is provoked by the vibration of a voice. But really, you have to take this literally. Totalitarian leaders know this very well. They start every new day with 30 minutes of propaganda, uh, in which the voice of the leader uh, constantly penetrates the consciousness uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the population. So, uh, without mass media and uh, without the ability to uh, confront people time and time again with the voice of the leaders, no mass formation would uh, continue as long as it continued uh, in Germany and, and, uh, and in, uh, in the Soviet Union. So, and the opposite is also true. And so, if other voices are available in the public space or sound in the public space, then hypnosis will be disturbed or will become less deep. So I think, in any case, so what we, 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 what we have to convince each other of time and time again um, uh, uh, is that we all together have to continue to speak out. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and... Um, um, Sorry, can you come again with the second part of your question? Because Sorry, yeah, it's a bad habit of asking two questions in one. Um, I, I, was, I was asking about your own experience. You had your own point of inflection. You know, was there anything that you observed that led to that point of inflection? Because uh, there's lots of people that, even within my audience, and if I ask them to share, and perhaps uh, you may want to do this in the comments if you're watching live, what was your turning point? Because I, I, I've asked the question in many different forums and groups, and people often find that there was something that just triggered them and said, no, this doesn't make sense anymore. Because I think if we can find these points of inflection and create content around those points of inflection, we create these points of relatability that perhaps could wake more people up. So uh, if, if for the audience watching at home, if there's a point of inflection for you where you, you realize things weren't right, right, please do share it in the comments. But for yourself, Matthias, that, that, that point where you, re- where you really 
recognize this was mass formation. You know, you'd looked at the statistics. Was there something that, that, that tipped you over the edge? No, uh, because as I mentioned, as I just mentioned, like uh, in the first week of the coronavirus, I, always, I, 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 I wrote my first opinion paper and the title of the paper was uh, the fear of the virus is more dangerous than the virus itself. Yeah. And because from the beginning, I had a feeling like, 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 look, the psychological process here is more threatening than the biological danger or the biological thing. And even more, uh, two months before the onset of the crisis, so in December, uh, the end of 2019, in, in uh, the late December 2019, I went to the bank to pay back my mortgage. Because, and the, and the bank director asked me, but why do you want to pay back your mortgage? You will lose your, your tax advantages and stuff. Why would you pay it back? And I said, because I feel and I know that this society is going to a tipping point. I had, at university, nothing functioned anymore. There were so many burnouts that, uh, that, that there was always someone lacking to do a certain task or to, to, to finish a certain project. And I knew, I felt, uh, there were several indicators that were negative indicators that were, really, that were really increasing exponentially. And in December 2019, I went to the bank and I said, I want to be as free as possible and I want to pay back my mortgage. And I talked for one and a half hours to the bank director who tried to convince me, like, that I didn't, that, it, that, it, that he felt like it was not necessary to pay back my mortgage, but I did pay it back, and I knew that two or two, two or three months later, uh, I told my wife, "Look, that's a tipping point that was about to happen," uh, and and uh, so I had the feeling that, of course, there were certain insights and certain information that. Sometimes I doubted during the crisis because, uh, for one reason or another, my uh, first opinion paper I was in, in, in um, uh, with my first opinion paper I was uh, I was suddenly famous in Belgium because everybody everybody read it and everybody was talking about it and and and, and, and the weeks after the publication of that paper uh, I, I really was I was really scared sometimes because I, I felt like well maybe I was wrong and maybe we were, we are really danger confronted with a with a killer virus here uh, and and of course there was certain information who really convinced me that uh, or who took away my doubts for instance as I said by the end of May uh, the fact that uh, the, 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 the models of Imperial College college proved to be uh, completely wrong and stuff. But I had a feeling that I was more or less a little bit awake from the beginning of the crisis, yes. Mm. Well, I think this, uh, this is the next point I'd like to move to, because what you did there, what you explained there is that you, you then went back to the statistics to rationalize yes. your, your instinct. Yes. And the reason I, make, I want to make that point is because actually... Um, you know, we could do a whole episode on this, and um, I've got people coming up on the show to talk about this. But keep, you know, you say keep keep talking, keep keep uh, sharing information. Now, one of the things we've recognised over the last eighteen months is that we try and we try and uh, influence with logic uh, and statistics and data and evidence, and it just seems like it hits up against a brick wall. So, is, is there any principles of influence that you could share? You know, is there a different approach that we could take in order to 
to psychologically uh, make this process easier. Yes, I think indeed, we have to continue to share rational counter-argumentations because they make the hypnosis less deep. I'm convinced of that. So we should not stop it, but if we, yeah. only, if we do only that, it might be frustrating. And so, because, because indeed, uh, uh, while the hypnosis becomes less deep, you're never really able to wake people up with these rational argumentations. And that's something very logical if you consider the process of mass formation. Actually, the beginning point of mass formation is an affective process. It's, it's something at the emotional level, meaning, uh, namely, this connection, this, this, this connect, connecting of uh, the free-floating anxiety to uh, the, 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 the representation of an object of anxiety such as the virus. So these two things, this free-floating uh, anxiety and the mental representation of the virus, they melted together. And to use a metaphor, you could say that it were like two pieces of metal that were heated up until they melted a little bit and then were pushed together and they merged. So, and that's why they are connected. They are connected because they were pushed against each, each other at a high level of heat in the, psych in the psychological system, at a high level of anxiety. So what you can do is... Uh, you can make people even more scared of a new object of anxiety, for instance, the risk of a totalitarian state, and then the temperature in the, in the, in the uh, psychological system will increase again, and the two pieces of metal will separate, and then if you provide them a new object of anxiety, you might be able to connect the anxiety to this new object of anxiety. Uh, and then it makes sense, then you can start to provide um, uh, uh, rational argumentations. And that's exactly what happens sometimes. I gave a few interviews here in Belgium and Holland on the risk of totalitarianism, and they, they were like, they, they got maybe two or even 300,000 views, I think. It were, they were really... Uh, many people watched it and they received many emails of people telling me that it was as if they woke up while watching to the, to the interviews and it, it, it sparked my interest and they asked them like why do you think, what did make you wake up when you watch the interviews and some people described it in detail and they said it was because I got really anxious of what you were telling about the risk of totalitarianism and that's what happens if, you, if people start to be even more scared of a new object of anxiety and you also offer uh, a new strategy to deal with this new object of anxiety you might uh, uh, you might uh, be able to, to wake them up and to connect all their emotional stuff and their anxiety to a new strat to a new a new narrative. So that's something that sometimes works quite well. And I, we've always so I've uh, I've been involved in uh, in um, uh, the making of some movies for some political uh, um, parties that uh, want to uh, to. Uh, to provide an alternative to, uh, to the corona, to the mainstream corona measures. And uh, uh, these narratives, these uh, propaganda films were sometimes quite uh, successful. And it was because, I think, because uh, I, 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 I uh, first, we first presented uh, some, uh, some frightening images of, uh, of totalitarian states and then started to provide rational argumentations uh, why the corona measures actually uh, were, not, uh, were up to no good, were not good at all uh, for society, stuff like that. So they, the, the basic principle is the following. First you have to deal with the affective component and then you can start to provide rational argumentation. Uh, but of course this is not always possible and I think nevertheless that it makes sense 
to continue to provide time and time again the same rational counter-argumentations because in this way you will not be able to wake the, the masses up but you will uh, make the hypnosis less deep or prevent it to become even deeper. Yes, and in, in many ways it strengthens the bonds amongst those who are uh, dissident voices as well because it gives them a greater certainty in their position in, in, uh, by, by, by having that rational uh, backup. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of examples around that. One of the issues I find is that there's this notion of it will never happen to me or it will never happen to us. And, you know, I, I take a metaphor from or a comparison from the world of health. You know, people People make decisions about what they eat and consume today, not really thinking about the health consequences 10, 20 years down the line. They're not thinking, you know, not, if, if they smoke or they drink or, or, or eat, eat poor diets, they don't, they don't think about the long-term consequences. But similarly, you could look at what's happening in Australia, for instance, or other parts of the world and say, well, that's never going to happen here. And that's the kind of the mentality that I see happening, even though it's happening in a comparable economy. You know, if it's happening in a... You know, when uh, there was uh, one of the countries, they, they, took, they, they took down their internet for three days. And, you know, you could imagine in a Western world, in, in the United Kingdom and Belgium, people would say, well, the governments would never take down the internet. But this is the mentality, because time and time again, we've seen over the last 12, 18 months, we've been saying that won't happen to us. And then within a month, there it is. You know, we've got this lockstep type arrangement where these things seemingly do happen. So, so how do you overcome that piece around it will never happen to us? Is there, is there anything you, you, you've learned that, 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 that can kind of overcome to bring a sense of immediacy? Because unless it, unless it feels immediate, like an immediate threat, you know, I share the, I share the fear with you. Uh, I fear the totalitarian regime. I fear the erosion of liberties and rights. They're a real anxiety for me. <laughs> they really are. Uh, but I get a sense of immediacy. I see it happening. I have the sense of urgency to act. But a lot of people, it feels like a distant horizon. Uh, you know, what can we do to bring that sense of urgency to people? That's, that's yes, 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 yeah. Well, um, yes, you know, I often ask people what in this kind of logic that now sees society would prevent you from uh, building new concentration camps. What in this kind of logic, if you feel it's justified to isolate people in their houses, to uh, force pregnant women to uh, wear mouth masks, to if you uh, uh, um, make older people die alone and in isolation, and in isolation, uh, if you and so on and so on. Why would we not take the next step to building uh, new camps in which we could isolate the people who tested positively on the coronavirus? And why uh, would we not take them the next steps? That's what Hannah Arendt also says, that typical of totalitarianism. In totalitarianism, a population is seized by a very simple and absurd logic that transgresses, that makes them transgress all ethical limits, as if there is no other option if A is true, then B, C, D, and all the rest follow from it, unavoidably. And she said, until the end of the deadly totalitarian alphabet. And so, and indeed, that's, that's something very typical. If the, the, the contaminations increase, uh, we have to go into lockdown again, uh, and so on. It's like a series of, 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 uh, of consequences uh, that, that seemed uh, strictly necessary. And indeed, that's what I often try to explain, like, uh, don't believe that, uh, that, uh, that uh, we could not end up uh, uh, with the same kind of measures that uh, Hitler 
considered uh, necessary uh, to create his pure race. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but but how to ex- yes? Yeah. I, you know, uh, it will be. To be honest, uh, I think it will be quite difficult to avoid. Uh, ending up uh, in a kind of a new totalitarianism. But it will be a new totalitarianism. It will be, on the one hand, the same as the old totalitarianism of the, of the first half of the 20th century, but it will always be radically different, uh, because it will be a, a worldwide totalitarian system. Uh, it will not have external enemies. Uh, it will only have internal enemies. And it will treat these internal enemies in a different way as the external enemies were treated. That's uh, something that is really typical for the logic of totalitarian systems. Totalitarian systems need an enemy. Mm. Without an enemy, they collapse. So I think that the, there is a good chance that uh, the new totalitarian system will tolerate the existence of the enemies, but it will uh, marginalize them, uh, push them outside of uh, mainstream society. Um, uh, that's one of the things that uh, I think will be uh, hard to avoid. Um, well, we're already seeing that, you know, particularly, you know, we haven't talked, we're not here to talk about your views on the vaccine, but nonetheless, we're seeing it with, with those who are not taking the vaccine, you know, the, you know, the steps of classification, symbolization, dehumanization, of course. you know, or the discrimination, all of these things are happening. You know, it's, it's the great them and us situations whereby you're the great unwashed, you're the ones creating the infections. You know, it's, it's, it's completely false, but it's, it's, it's creating that internal enemy uh, and, and, and growing that. But that's, that's the piece that shocks me and concerns me the most is that, that mentality and, and the things I see people coming out with on social media. Again, sane, rational people normally, that, that, that the kind of things that they're posting are the kind of things that if social media existed in the 30s, I can see that's what they would be saying. You know, it's, it's just unbelievable to see, but that's, that's my yes. worry is, is that we're on that path. Of course, of course we are. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and totalitarianism doesn't care whether their claims are true or not. Uh, the only thing the, 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 the narrative has to do is it has to connect the people, it has to uh, uh, make the collective stronger, it has to uh, reorganize, uh, the, to bind the anxiety, uh, and so on. That's the only thing that matters. All the rest, uh, the more absurd a narrative is, uh, 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 the better it functions as a ritual. That's the, the drama of, of, uh, of, of, of totalitarianism. Uh, like our, our prime minister uh, two days ago uh, said in the news that uh, actually this pandemic was a pandemic of the non-vaccinated uh, and, and, and uh, that they had to stop to put the vaccinated at risk. So that's so contradictory because if only the non-vaccinated uh, or, or, uh, or vulnerable for contamination with the coronavirus, then the, then the, the, non, the, the, the vaccinated are not at risk at all because they cannot be contaminated anymore. So it's, it's, but but the, so such claims are truly absurd, but in one way or another, uh, people continue to buy into them and to, 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 to go along with the narrative. That's uh, showing that uh, uh, whether the narrative is correct or wrong uh, doesn't play any role at all, really. Um, no, no, I mean, I appreciate we're over time. Do you have time to answer one more question? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you, you know, the role of the totalitarianism, to me, that's the thing I fear the most. Now, now in terms of a 
counter narrative in terms of creating uh, an opposition to this. There is a lack of opposition. Do you think if a, a compelling vision, you know, a more compelling vision for the future, a better alternative can be projected? Uh, would that would that in some way become more attractive to people, or are they just too, you know, particularly that middle forty percent? You know, I, I appreciate the thirty percent maybe too far down the track, the ones that are most indoctrinated. But if there's a more compelling vision for the future, a more compelling vision for society, a more compelling set of solutions to deal with the problems we're facing, is that is that is that going to be enough of a motivator? I know I know more people move away from pain than they do move towards pleasure typically. But if we if we create that compelling vision and create an alternative, is that something you think could play a role in in transforming the situation we're in? Yes. No. Yes, it can play a role. We have to make our, our own narrative as strong as possible, uh, as convincing as possible. But what we should realize in the first place is that totalitarianism and, ma- and mass formation always ends up destroying itself. So the self-destructive character of mass formation and totalitarianism is something that has been observed and described by all scholars that study the phenomenon. So... On the one hand, um, uh, uh, so if we think about the best strategy to deal with the situation, then we should be aware that we are are dealing with an extremely strong enemy, but an enemy who will always destroy himself. So the only thing we have to do is we have to make sure that uh, our story continues uh, to be present in public space, and that we survive for a few years. <laughs> that are, but that are realistic goals, and we never should try to beat the enemy because the enemy can only be beaten by himself. That's but something that really, actually, you can explain it psychologically in a very nice and convincing way uh, why the masses and totalitarianism are always self-destructive. And as soon as you realize that, you realize that the only thing you have to do is to continue to speak and to make sure that in one way or another you can survive outside of the system. These two things. And then you can quietly wait until totalitarianism destroys itself. Uh, but, uh, of course, I don't say that it will be easy, but, uh, but that is the strategy to deal with it, and I'm sure that it will work. And you will see that the small group, the small group uh, will survive, and that uh, in one way or another, uh, uh, after the collapse, it will play uh, an important role, I think, in the rebuilding of a society according to new and more human, uh, more ethical uh, principles. Um, I agree. I, you know, I think in the shell of the old will emerge something more beautiful and vibrant, uh, and that's where uh, yeah, I think that, that, that excitement for me comes. Um, it, it, last thing, so, so in terms of your studies with totalitarianism, you know, where, where are we on that line? You know, how far away are we from the serpent destroying itself here? You know, yeah. is, is, you know is there a typical pattern? That's a good question. Um, well, I think we have to some steps to go, actually. Yes, I think so. Um, of course, I think this totalitarian system uh, probably will destroy itself much quicker than the totalitarian systems of the 20th century because none of, the, of these totalitarian systems has uh, intruded uh, the bodies of its population in such a systematic and straightforward way, so with the, with the vaccination uh, 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 campaigns and so on. In my opinion, yeah, 
um, purely reasoning from a psychological point of view, uh, if you know that all the totalitarian projects ended up as a disaster, that's something really striking. You, you can read, for example, uh, the book of Hannah Arendt uh, on the origins of totalitarianism and then the book of Solzhenitsyn, uh, the Gulag Archipelago, I don't know if you know the book, but they all they describe uh, the processes uh, in the Soviet Union in a very detailed way and they both conclude exactly the same. Every project... Uh, uh, that was undertaken by the totalitarian leaders ended up as a disaster. And they continued until the population was completely exhausted, exterminated, destroyed, and so on. Um, and that's why you need a large population uh, for a true, full-fledged totalitarian system to emerge. You need a very large population. That's the only reason why, the so uh, that's the, main, the, the most important reason why in the Soviet Union uh, totalitarianism was pushed to the most extreme uh, limit. Uh, because the population in Germany was not large enough and there were totalitarian trends in several other countries as well. But if the population is too small, uh, a full-fledged totalitarian system can never emerge. But so, everything is totalitarian leaders uh, did ended up as a disaster. It ended it always for certain very... I'm describing them in my book for, uh, for certain psychological reasons or the nature of the psychological process of mass formation makes that in one way or another all projects end as in a self-destructive way. And that's why I'm very, very... Uh, uh, yeah, that I think that the entire uh, vac vaccination campaign might end up in the most spectacular disaster uh, 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 we've ever seen uh, at the medical level and, and maybe even uh, throughout history. Uh, um, scientists or, or human beings and throughout their research and throughout their uh, their, 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 their work in the laboratory, they constantly make subjective decisions. And these subjective decisions are driven by psychological powers, psychological factors that they do not have under control themselves. I could give perfect examples of how every uh, scientific process uh, 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 is driven unconsciously by, the, by, 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 by deeper psychological processes. And if people are saturated with uh, destructive uh, tendencies in themselves, eventually they will end up by producing a destructive uh, product. And that's, that's what we are at risk of with the vaccination campaign, I think. Um, uh, that's one of the most complicated and, and, and most difficult parts of the totalitarian uh, uh, thinking to explain, but it can be perfectly explained why it is self-destructive in nature and why it always, why, why, why all projects, totalitarian projects, end up in self-destruction. Um, uh, well, uh, but uh, maybe it would lead us too far now to, to, to go into this, to really... Uh, yes, yes. No, thank you for answering those extra questions. I think the good, the good news is, you know, this is a was it's a course set in motion. We also know from history it's likely to be self-destructive. Uh, but we can all play our part, I believe, in accelerating that pathway by continuing to speak out and having the courage to, 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 to share this type of information. So um, if you found value in this conversation today, I, I mean, I've been trying to take notes as I go along. It's been so fascinating. Please do share this. Just take a moment.
Okay, so there you have it. That's uh, Matthias. Can't remember his name now, but I'll uh, I'll put it in the notes. I'll put a link to the video in the notes as well. Uh, thanks for listening. That's that's the end of part two. There is no part three as yet. Um, every interview that he does, I'm going to be posting. Also, um, there you go. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you a bit later on. <laughs>